and welcome to Plotting Through the Presidents. I'm Howard Dory. I'm Jessica Dory. We should start calling this Plotting Through the Presidents at Night because our life is now recording late at night after the children have gone to sleep. It's true. The children are are sleeping. Yeah, we just like Nick at night, we're plod at night. (laughs) (laughs) You know, this is a podcast and people can listen to it anytime they want. Well, they should know. (laughs) <laughs> that it is late at night there should be a us. message it's like this was recorded at night it, yes i think they might hear the difference each week we bring you a lesser known story from the early days of the united states and this week is special because we've got a guest oh i can't wait to hear what you've been up to yeah i had the pleasure of interviewing author michael meyer who wrote a very Thought, cool book okay sorry i heard michael myers and i was like oh my god you know what? You interviewed Michael Myers. <laughs> I was on the fence. Like, should I talk to this guy? Is he cool? Uh, and or then is I he looked, a murderer? <laughs> and then I looked on Twitter, and his profile photo was Michael Myers in the mask. Of course it was. And then immediately you thought, I've got to meet this guy. <laughs> uh, that's exactly what happened. Yes. <laughs> awesome. Tell me about him. Uh, he wrote a book that's all about Benjamin Franklin's will, specifically uh-huh. about a unique stipulation in that will that governed how... Ben Franklin's money would be used to help two American cities for 200 years. Oh, wow. That's cool. Yeah. But before we get to that, I want to share a story about something else alluded to in Franklin's will, something he considered his greatest invention. Oh, can I guess? Can I guess what his best or greatest invention was? You can guess all night. All right. Harnessing electricity for the use of man and womanhood? <laughs> no. Uh, okay, wait. I have more guesses. Okay. Um like bifocals. So no. 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 Okay, let me Okay. Something involving couture. Like fashion? <laughs> well, like, you know, putting something in the clothing to keep the person cool or so, I don't know, something scientific, but was that was used for fashion. <laughs> Is that Yes, he invented uh panty coolers. <laughs> no (laughs) just tell me what it is and let the shenanigans stop okay well the shenanigans are just getting started (laughs) it's a unique musical instrument it became enormously popular among the elite in europe to the point where mozart and beethoven were writing pieces for it (gasps) harpsichord no unlike other parts of franklin's will that lasted literally hundreds of years, this invention, this musical instrument, nearly fell off the face of the earth within maybe 30 years of his death. A guitar. And some people think it's because it drove people who played it insane. A piano, the kind of piano that sounds like a like a dying piece of metal? Hmm, you're almost getting closer. All right. Franklin said, of all my inventions, the glass harmonica... What? Has given me the greatest personal satisfaction. Oh, good lord. Oh. A glass harmonica? No. Okay, listen. Oh, is it the is it the crystal flute? No, it's not James Madison's crystal flute. <laughs> ben Franklin did not invent that. Oh, I got them mixed up. Yes. This uh <laughs> this would be pretty cool though. I would love to see Lizzo play this. First of all, it's not harmonica, although some people called it a harmonica. It's harmonica without the h. But it comes from the Greek word for harmony. I'm just shaking my head at this point. All right. Shall I describe this instrument? I think you need to get on with it. Yes. Wow. I'm just frustrated that I didn't guess it. Nobody knows you about this. You even told me it was an instrument and I couldn't even come close. But he, he invented a harmonica? No, I mean, an harmonica? Yes. Yes. Okay, okay. If you're picturing some kind of mouth organ, yeah. stop. What is it? Let me tell you what it is. is it? I've been here all night trying to tell you what this glass harmonica is. Is it a coochie organ? Like what? You have to this So when you think of musical instruments, there are two categories. Those you play with your mouth and those you play with your coochie. There's no other kind of musical instrument that exists. No, but following the sentence of it's not a mouth organ, <laughs> it would need to gather. <laughs> it would need to gather a wind in some other way. <laughs> Who said it's a wind organ? You said it's not a mouth organ. And I so- didn't say it was a wind organ. 
but the way you were explaining that sentence, it just clearly was going to be some kind of a a wind organ. <laughs> I I think I understand your confusion. A mouth organ is another term I for was, what what we call the harmonica. All I know is I was using context clues, and now I'm being punished <laughs> by this string of events. No one's being punished right now. This is this is a delight. <laughs> Um, I, I'm going to tell you right now, it's a strange instrument, so you're not going to necessarily be able to guess what's happening here. Just keep going then. So, okay. It goes back to 1761. Franklin was in England and he saw some guy playing the glasses. You know how you can get your finger wet and rub it around the rim of a water glass or a wine glass and (laughs) get that weird, cool hum. What are you, what are you laughing at? We have a respectable historian in this episode. Okay. I'm and, so and I'm going to email him and say, hey, your episode's up. And I'm now, I'm, now I'm being punished. No, no. Um, okay. Continue with your discussion of rimming. <laughs> Be respectful to Michael Myers. This man kills teenagers every Halloween, and he shouldn't have to put up with this kind of nonsense. Oh, my gosh. But you know, you, you've done the thing with a glass. You know how it elicits that like kind of cool hum. I'm very good at that, actually. That's the whole concept behind the glass harmonica, the glasses. Except Franklin took it to the next level. He had different sized glass bowls made, 36 of them. So each one would have a different tone. And they were put on their side with holes in the middle. Oh, wow. And there's a metal rod that goes through them like a shish kebab with cork around the holes. So the idea is you're not moving your hands around a bunch of different glasses. The glasses are moving in a circle and you're just putting your fingers on them. Oh. And there's a pedal that would turn the rod and the player would dip their hands in the water and touch the bowls to bring about these otherworldly hums. That's pretty cool. Yeah. This instrument blew up. Within a year, it was being played all over Europe. There were just a few virtuosos that really mastered it. Uh, most of them were women, some of them were blind, but oh. it was a big thing. Mozart and Beethoven wrote music for it. Marie Antoinette took lessons on it. It was becoming like a real, legit, recognized instrument, and there was nothing else like it. Its sound was described as celestial ravishment for the ear. It was called haunting, ethereal, heavenly, magical. I can picture that. Yeah, and the best source for this info, by the way, uh, it's a book by Corey Mead called Angelic Music, the story of Ben Franklin's glass harmonica. So it wasn't just big in Europe. Thomas Jefferson was a big fan of it too. And he said that if someone could figure out how to attach a keyboard to it, kind of like they figured out how to attach keys to the stringed instrument that we know as a piano, He said, if they could do that, it will be the greatest present which has ever been made to the musical world this century, not accepting the pianoforte. Wow. So they, but they never were able to get keys onto the. No, a lot of folks tried. um, They all failed. It's it's like the magic of the glass harmonica needs the human touch. The manual dexterity of the human touch. Yeah. It needs wet human flesh to coax its haunting sounds from it. All right. You're getting dirty. What? I'm. It's it's plotting after dark. <laughs> so so maybe maybe that is part of why it developed a reputation for being dangerous. Oh, because you need your fingers. Because it was touching your nerves and affecting you in different ways. Hmm. So its sound was so ethereal and and unique and haunting that some people really believed that it could hurt you. Oh. That it could drive How? you mad or push you into a depression. Oh, wow. Um it reportedly led one player to suicide. Um, it was generally advised that if you were prone to feeling melancholy, um, if you were one of those in whom the darker bile resides, <laughs> that you shouldn't play it. <laughs> or you should switch to happier songs if you found yourself becoming sad. And you shouldn't play it at night ever because, well, that's when the dark feelings come. <laughs> okay. Yeah. They were a fearful bunch. And it was a very moody instrument. And people were just starting to kind of make the connection between like emotions and health and what that could do to people. Mm, Interesting. Some people thought that its tones had the power to raise the dead. And it's reported that in one German village, a young child died during a performance. Oh, goodness. And after that, it was completely banned in some places. So what was going on with this thing? Yeah. 
Was it the unnerving tone of the music? Did the glass bowls really draw their power by being receptacles for human souls? Are the tones that you hear the screams of its victims? Who can say? There is a theory that people actually did go insane playing the instrument because the glass was made of lead and painted with lead paint. Well, that might do it. But it's not very plausible because the glass back then actually wasn't made of lead. The paint was, but you can't really get lead poisoning just by touch. You have to ingest the lead. Well, were they licking their fingers ever to keep them wet? That's one theory. If they were licking their fingers to keep them wet, they never would have gotten through a whole song. They would have dried up and withered away and died because you need a whole lot of water. Okay. You got to keep those fingers real wet. So lead poisoning probably also didn't play into it because back then there was lead everywhere. (laughs) You're drinking glasses, like your goblets or whatever, your plates. So you were ingesting lead all the time. Playing the glass harmonica was probably one of the few breaks during your day when you weren't getting lead poisoning. (laughs) But the fact is, by 1830, this instrument had basically fallen off the face of the earth. Part of it might have been because of the association with weird science and the belief that it was dangerous. But the bigger reason is probably because it was super fragile. It seems like a hard and difficult thing to assemble as well or move. Or replace when glasses break. Yeah. Yeah. It was a pain in the ass to schlep around. And most of all, the worst thing going for it is that it wasn't that loud. Oh. This was a time of Mozart and Beethoven and what we think of as real classical music. We picture symphonies and orchestras, and that's the direction that music was moving to. It was moving from little parlors to bigger halls. Mm -hmm. And microphones and amplification electronically didn't exist back then. The glass harmonica couldn't compete with other instruments when it came to sound. It was just getting swallowed up. That makes sense. There were reviews that said, I bet it would have sounded great in a smaller place. (laughs) Or if I could have heard it. Yeah. There's one company now that makes glass harmonicas. It's the Finkenbeiner Company out of Boston. They, they mostly make glass vials and stuff like medical supplies. That's their bread and butter. But the creator, Gerhard Finkenbeiner, also became obsessed with the glass harmonica after seeing it in a museum. Wow. He was a glassblower by trade. Uh, he was born in Germany. He was actually forced to be a Nazi glassblower uh, during World War II working in a factory. Mm-hmm. But okay. he'd always wanted to be a sound engineer. After the war, when he came across this glass harmonica in a museum, he channeled that passion for sound and his glassblowing talent into creating a new and improved version of the original glass harmonica with the purest glass that you can get. Goodness. And now, if you're an eccentric musician with thousands of dollars to blow on something eerie, you can order one. <laughs> so should you order one of these things if you can? I don't know. <laughs> Maybe not if you believe it's a cursed instrument and your nerves are frail. <laughs> Right now, I'm told there are only nine people in the world that perform on the glass harmonica. Wow. How many exist in the world? Six billion or something. Glass harmonicas? Oh, <laughs> no, people. No. <laughs> you, thought I, you thought I asked how many people on, in the world right now? Yeah. No, I'm asking how many glass harmonicas I'm not exist. sure. I'm not sure. I think this company makes like maybe eight or so a year. When you said six billion, I was like, that can't be. <laughs> <laughs> nope, little off. There's one for each person. <laughs> That's right. Come, but come, come pick up your glass harmonica. You won't be able to play it, but come <laughs> here, get it. Here at Circuit City. <laughs> so there are only nine people. One of them is a woman in New Mexico named Maylene Garcia. Uh-huh. So one day in 1987, she's visiting her sister at Harvard. She randomly sees one of these being played in Harvard Square. And years later, she remembers it and she thinks, that's what I need to do with my life. I've got to learn to play this instrument. Oh, not just obtain it, but play it. Yes. She was a waitress at the time and uh, a foster parent of kids with severe medical issues. Mm. She had no musical training. She'd never even played an instrument, any instrument before. Yet she wanted to play. She wanted to play this instrument. Glass harmonica. So she contacted Finkenbeiner and she told him, I need one of these. (laughs) I'm going to play it. I'm going to, well, I'm going to make it famous. I'm going to bring this instrument to the people. So this is not an easy instrument to play. (laughs) Apparently, it can take months of trying before your harmonica gives you even the first chirp. Oh, that's unfortunate. It's not just something you lightly touch and then it works. Like you have to touch it with different parts of your fingers and yeah. 
But Mei-Ling convinced Gerhardt to send her one. He discounted it to half price for her. Why? Um, because she had such passion. But you can't sell many of those a year. Like, why would the one you do sell that year, you're going to give half off? I think he saw someone who was maybe just as passionate about this instrument as he was. Okay. Just as captivated by it. spirit. Yeah. It spoke to him. Got it. From its eerie, otherworldly place. Here, take my haunted harmonica. Yes. Um, and he actually taught her how to play over the phone. What? Yeah. How is that even possible when people can't even get a chirp after months? I don't know. I don't know what patience this must have required, but a few years later, after practicing, she landed a gig on a huge Spanish-speaking TV show seen by millions of people all over the world. And Gerhardt told her, after seeing this look, there's only a small group of people in the world who play this instrument, and you're the worst. (laughs) But you have the most exposure. So I'm going to fly you out here to Boston uh, I'm going to teach you how to play chords. Um, at this point, they'd become really good friends, but they'd never met in person. Uh-huh. So she goes out to Boston to stay in his guest house and, and learn how to really play this instrument. They spent the day together. They talked until four in the morning that night. And the next day after lunch, he says he's got her go run some errands. He goes to the airport. He gets in his own little private plane and he's never heard from again. What? He disappeared. The maker of the the crystal harmonica. The glass harmonica, yeah. The man who brought glass harmonicas into the 20th century and whose factory is the only place, really, that makes them. Is this like a Willy Wonka story where he was, you know, looking for his predecessor and then he felt good about leaving? I don't think... I just mean, like, why would he go run an air on an airplane? I mean, he liked to fly. Sometimes he would just go fly for 45 minutes. What kind of... Pl- oh, his li- it was a little plane. Yeah, it was a he little was plane. He was flying it? He was flying it, yeah. Oh. No wreckage or anything was ever found. No trace of him was ever found after that. And they had the guy who searched for JFK Jr.'s plane out looking for him. Oh my god. And this was a huge search. Um... Yeah, he'd just gone, not a trace. The last people who saw him, he stopped at a liquor store. We're not sure what he bought. And then he went to the airport. And the people that saw him in both places said that he seemed to be in a great mood. It sounds like his plane crashed into the ocean. The depths of the ocean where nothing can be found. That may be what happened. I spoke to Mei Ling. Oh, what? About Gerhard, Yeah. I talked to her today. You talked to her today? <laughs> yes. Yeah. I wanted to check some facts. It was a great conversation. She's a lovely person. She she can't explain what happened. It was it was traumatic for her. She lost a very close friend. Oh. Her best friend, she called him. Oh. Um, but she did call it an ironic twist in the history of this creepy instrument. Yeah. Was he driven mad by the instrument? I mean... Did the dark spirits come out of the glass and sink his plane? That... Does that's, seem to be the most likely. No, I don't. No, I don't think that was that's it. That's terrible. Yeah, it's just a weird, sad footnote in the history of the glass harmonica. Uh. But the Finkenbeiner company still makes glass harmonicas, and Malin Garcia still plays wherever she can. Oh wow! She's so enthusiastic about this instrument and the places that she's taken it. She played it on America's Got Talent. Really? Yeah. She also takes her harmonica to schools where she teaches kids about the history of the instrument. She says that in all of her performances, no children have ever been injured. (laughs) But sometimes they do cover their ears to muffle the haunting, piercing sounds of the glass harmonica. Wow. Yeah. You can learn more about Mailing Garcia at MailingGarcia.com. We'll also put that in the show notes. Yeah. How do you spell her first name? M-A-Y-L-I-N-G. Amazing. Yeah. So let's go to Michael Meyer, author of Benjamin Franklin's Last Bet, but we're going to let William Zeitler play us out. He is another glass harmonica player, and here's a little bit of him playing Amazing Grace with some accompaniment. Okay, perfect. Welcome to the show, Michael Meyer. Uh, thank you for joining. 
your book, Benjamin Franklin's Last Bet, it's a really interesting way to learn about Franklin. Mm -hmm. Most people would write about his life, a typical biography. You kind of start from a place of his afterlife and you start with his his will. Mm -hmm. Now, what is it about Benjamin Franklin's will and his last wishes that set him apart from all of his contemporaries? You know, I think when Franklin died, he was not in a great place. You know, I think he he felt a bit betrayed by his fellow founders. Um, they had tarred him as, you know, more of an expat than as an American. I think he felt upset um, at the course that the university he had founded had taken, which is now the University of Pennsylvania. He had founded that to provide practical learning and public speaking and when he got back from being a minister in Paris, he discovers, oh, it's become a finishing school for the gentry. Um, and, and now, my gosh, mm. they're learning Greek and Latin, right? And I think he felt the same way about his fellow founders, that these were landed gentry, aristocrats, lawyers, um, very different than who he was. And to go back to what you know sets his will apart, he knew his will would be published when he died because he was the most famous American um, and he was 84 years old. He had out, you know, at least two generations older than his fellow founders. Um, and so he starts this will with I, Benjamin Franklin, printer. You know, for all, his achieve, all of his achievements, mm -hmm. he starts with his trade. And then throughout the will, he's leaving, you know, slices of his, his vast wealth to various family members, family members, some of whom he had fallen out with over the Revolutionary War. But he's attaching lessons to each of them. You know, he's reminding people that although he had been a slave owner, um, he had turned to abolition later in life. He presented the first petition to outlaw slavery to Congress, which was, you know, laughed out of the chamber, of course. But he's giving these gifts, you know, and he's, he's rallying against the laws of coverture, for example, giving to his daughter Sally, his most expensive um, bauble saying this is for your ownership alone, your husband can't have this. And then to round this out, you know, he he felt mocked at the Constitutional Convention when he had suggested that people who hold public office shouldn't be paid. He warned people at the convention that if you if you attach salaries to office, you're going to get people who are chasing wealth rather than service and they're going to be using offices to promote their own ends. Um, and so Franklin, when he had been appointed president of Pennsylvania, which is the governorship for two consecutive years, refused his salary. He wanted to show people, you know, this example of this. And that salary totaled 2,000 British pounds, which was a lot of money at the time. Um, and so on his deathbed, he adds this codicil to his will saying, you know, that salary that Pennsylvania owes me, I'm not going to give that to my heirs and even puts a paragraph preceding this in his will to his heirs saying, you're not going to like this. <laughs> you know, I know it's standard that you leave everything to your family, but I'm going to do something different here. And then he, he uses that 2000 pounds to basically invent microfinance. You know, he decides that this money is going to be split between his two hometowns of Boston and Philadelphia, and it's going to fund uh, people who would have finish their apprenticeships in the trades in those cities to start their own businesses. And so it's a 60 pound loan that can be repayable over a period of 10 years at below market interest, 5% annually. And the notion is that, you know, this money, as you pay back the interest, the, the, the principle of the fund will grow and more tradespeople can, can receive loans to start their own businesses. And the amazing thing about this is that Franklin not only <laughs> thought this was a great idea, but he thought it was going to last for 100 and then 200 years. And in the will, he says, um, in his experience, good apprentices make the best citizens. And for the Republic to survive, it needs tradespeople to be successful and then to enter public service. Because he said, if you're a carpenter, if you're a mason, if you're a glazier, you see people from all walks of life come into your shop during the day and you see the effects of taxation and policy upon those people and yourself. And he said, if we, we need that connection between the street and Congress to understand how to rule our country. Um, and so it's a really remarkable story that, you know, I'll put a button on this. I know I'm talking a long time. I'm sorry, but I, you know, as I was reading his will, I kept thinking, why has no one written this story before? And 
touched on it in your beginning, you know, a biography, the very nature of the word is a life writing, you know, bio and, and graph. Um, so I don't know if I've done a mortography, you know, a sort of death writing, but I was struck by, you know, looking at the immense shelf of Franklin books. I don't think any American's been written about more. Maybe, maybe Lincoln has. Um, and how no one's covered this story before. And frankly, most people that write about Franklin are Ivy League graduates, you know, and I, I, my family is in construction. I grew up working class. And so for me, you know, every generation kind of discovers Franklin for themselves, as I say in the book, we're always, every generation says, oh, there's something cool about Franklin we haven't seen before. For me, when I read his will, I thought this is fascinating at a time when the United States has such a dearth of skilled tradespeople and um, less than 2% of Congress has ever held a working class job by their own admissions. Uh, this is really a stark example of, you know, what, what Franklin hoped for the country um, and also how in many ways that vision has failed. There's a, there's a lot there uh, mm-hmm. to dig into. Digging into his will, one, I have so many questions. One of them, can you refuse your salary and then later say, oh, no, 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 I, I need you to give that to, to the future? I think that's a great question. I wonder too, you know, you can, you can see the ledgers, right? You could, they still exist, not only the loan documents, but his, his bank books and everything. These are all at the American Philosophical Society in Philadelphia, where much to my amazement, you can walk in and ask to hold them. Um, I've held Franklin's mm. will, for example. They don't even ask you to put gloves on or, or stand over you as you look at them. Um, but in the colonial, in the Pennsylvania, Register right there, there is that unpaid amount. And that's a really good question. Is it okay to say, I don't want the money? And then if they're balancing their budget and whatnot, how can you go back and claim it? <laughs> right. He kind of gets, he gets the credit during his lifetime of saying like, I refuse this money. I shouldn't right. be paid. Um, he could have just taken the money and then. And then. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> he was so upset after the Constitutional Convention. You know, James Madison <laughs> recorded that. When Franklin talked about um, people in public office shouldn't have salaries, the, the fellow delegates sort of nodded along out of respect for who was saying it. But had it been anybody else, they would have laughed him or, you know, jeered him off the floor. Now, Madison, though, felt that salaries of congressmen should be pegged to the average annual price of wheat. So he said, you should take the bushel of wheat price and then we'll do a multiple of that. And that will be how we're paid. Um, it's fascinating to go back and look at this. This is another thing that surprised me when I was researching the book that when Franklin is writing his will, you know, the demise of the United States seems much more certain than its success. Mm. Um, and its financial institutions were so fledgling that, you know, when Franklin leaves this money, it's in British pounds. The U.S. dollar won't become official currency until 1792, two years after he dies. Uh, but then he's also saying in the will that, if you're, if you know, to receive these 60 pounds to start your business, you need two guarantors to back it up. And they have to say that they'll repay the money in, in milled Spanish gold. Um, he doesn't even want US currency to be part of it. And he's also doing this at a time, you know, the New York Stock Exchange opens two years after his death. And so there isn't a banking infrastructure or an investment infrastructure at this time. Um, Franklin, like I said, is I see him as a forefather of microfinance, but in many ways, this will and this this provision he gives, these loans, as you're reading the story in the book, you'll notice it's sort of also a history of American philanthropy and a history of American finance as well, because the different people that came into play managing the money were trying different things with it that were invented for the first time. Thinking about Madison versus Franklin, as far as these these differing views of whether a politician in this role should have a salary, there's also the thought that if there's no salary, aren't you only going to get people who don't need the money in the role? Oh, this is a funny thing. Franklin is very paradoxical in many ways. You know, and I, I track yeah. this in the book. For example, <laughs> like, you know, when he starts off in the 1720s as a printer, he's he's publishing the first abolitionist tract in the American colonies. But he's also a slaveholder. You know, he's, he's, he has men working in his shop for unpaid labor. And so you think like one hand doesn't always know what the other hand is doing with Franklin. And this is consistent throughout his life where he'll have proposals and then he'll say, well, I was wrong about that. And he turns face and goes back. Um, I agree with you. When you read it now, knowing what we know now, you look at it and you think, well, you could say you don't need a salary because you retired at age 42 <laughs> And you inherited a lot of your late wife's property, and you're a made man, essentially. 
Um, but I think what he really meant when he was standing at the convention and doing this is he's looking out again at Washington, at Hamilton, at, at Adams. He's looking at lawyers and he's looking at people who have enormous holdings of land or you know plantations in the case of many of these men. Um, and I think he's thinking, huh, this isn't this isn't the republic that I signed up for. This isn't the Philadelphia that I was helping to build um, in the last 50 years. And so I think this was, again, his way of sort of needling them a little bit. And he does this with the Pennsylvania Academy as well. I think Franklin's probably the only person who's ever died who left nothing for the school that he founded. You know, now it's so <laughs> typical, right? They always give this huge bequest to your school. Um, he was so shocked at, at the, the, the course the school had taken that he wrote an excoriating letter to them saying, look, I'm the last of the board members here, the original founders of this school, and you've completely you know, subverted our vision for this. Um, and I feel like I have to say something here. And that letter was never released publicly, actually. I found that in the archives, but he, he cut it out oh, of his cool. will. Along the lines of pettiness and, and well, grudges <laughs> in Franklin's will, I'm really fascinated by his relationship with his family, mm-hmm. and especially with his son, William. Uh, if you could talk a little bit about how uh, William was discussed in that will and, and what led to that. Yeah, Franklin made a point of, of listing William as the first of his beneficiaries. Now, William was his heir apparent. You know, we don't know who William's mother was. Uh, he was born illegitimately. He was probably born to a prostitute. He called, you know, Franklin's wife, Deborah, who was his common law wife, you know, William called Deborah nothing but mother throughout his whole life. And they seemed to have a really great relationship. And William and Franklin, you know, had a lot of fractures that were happening before the revolution. I mean, William is probably the man who was holding the kite as Franklin touched his knuckle to the key during the famous kite experiment. Um, that doesn't Franklin seem took William. <laughs> it doesn't seem like good parenting, does it? Um, no, it was probably at the stable where he boarded his pony. You know, this is William. Like William was a favored kid growing up and he was helping his father in his experiments. But also when Franklin was appointed to be the colonial agent for Pennsylvania and later Massachusetts and Georgia, uh, when William, when Franklin was posted to London in the 1750s, he takes William along with him and William enrolls in, in law school there. And William continues the Franklin family tradition. He also fathers an illegitimate son. Um, who's named Temple, William Temple, and Temple after Temple Bar, where William was studying for the law in London. Um, You know, Franklin took William to the coronation of King George uh, at Westminster Abbey. I mean, these were very, very close people. Um, And Franklin, you know, when he releases the Hutchinson Papers, which he leaks these, these papers from the colonial governor of Massachusetts, that's suggesting to the British Parliament that more control is needed, you know, that the rebels are, are getting restless and the Stamp Act um, isn't going far enough. Franklin leaks these letters and it sort of begins his transformation to a patriot because up to this point, Franklin was a very loyal English subject, subject to the king. And Franklin is is called to, to the carpet, essentially. He's brought to what used to be Henry VIII's cockpit in Westminster and is excoriated. You know, he's roundly denounced by the king's privy council. Um, for releasing these letters from the Massachusetts governor. And he's drummed out, he's stripped of all his uh, British colonial posts, which includes deputy postmaster, um, which was an incredibly lucrative job for Franklin because it allowed him to send his Pennsylvania Gazette up and down the American colonial seaboard for free, uh, among other privileges. And so Franklin is so incensed that he's been stripped of his title. He tells his son, William, who's then at that time appointed colonial governor of New Jersey, obviously because of his father's connections. He tells William, you know, this there's a change coming and I've been stripped and publicly shamed and you should resign the governorship. And William refuses. And William says, no, you should come home, father. You know, they could use you at the Continental Congress. Um, Mom misses you. You know, you've been away for several years at this point. And Franklin is so upset because he feels this is a public rebuke from his heir apparent, William, that is, he's not going to go this. And he even tells William, you should quit because you can make something of a resignation, but you can make nothing of a firing. Um, and William refuses again. And then Franklin says, well, I hate to remind you of this, son, but you owe me a lot of money. And the salary that you're getting as colonial governor of New Jersey is not settling those debts. And then William comes back with, well, dad, you know, mom's about to die and you should come home. She's had a stroke. And so this this is really the fracturing. This really begins, right? And then on Christmas Eve, William sends a note to his dad saying, um, mom died uh, last night. And I think she died of a broken heart because you never came home. 
So I think this is really on what, 15 years or something? Yeah, exactly. That's right. Yeah. And so this is the beginning of these irreconcilable differences, both on the political and the familial level. Um, And then during the Revolutionary War, and some of your readers might know this, you know, William stayed loyal to the king and was, in fact, arrested, imprisoned in Connecticut, lost his hair, lost his teeth. Uh, Washington refused to parole him, even though Washington knew William since he was a young boy and, of course, was friends with Franklin. Uh, William's wife is dying in in New York of a heart condition, um, and Washington refuses to parole him, and so he doesn't get to go. And he says, I'd rather you just shoot me and get it over with. So he's held for over a year in what was supposed to be a condemned man's cell on a straw mattress and so forth. But then when he's finally released, he doesn't you know, have a, a turn of heart, nor does he go right away to England. He starts leading a, a sort of clandestine militia um, that's hunting down patriots, the rebels, and he's, he's you know, they're doing essentially uh, extrajudicial executions of these people when they catch them. And so Franklin is, is getting word of all this. This is before William finally is exiled and, and, and lives out his days in London. So when you look at the last will and testament, you know, Franklin's first beneficiary is his son, William, and William was supposed to inherit everything. Um, and instead, Franklin writes to my firstborn son, William, um, you are allowed um, none of the estate that you uh, tried to deprive me of. Instead, I'm, I'm leaving you all my all the papers you have of mine in your possession, which Franklin would have known were none because William had everything burned or lost in the war before he sailed to, to Great Britain. Um, and he says, I'm canceling the debts that, that you owe me, which again, William would know that Franklin knew that he had nothing. And then finally he says, I'm leaving you these lands in Nova Scotia. Um, which you think, at, oh, well, that sounds like a lot when you look at the, where it is, but it's frozen tundra that was granted to Franklin by the crown years earlier. And so when Franklin's grandson, Benny, who goes on to inherit Franklin's printing press and is taught Franklin's trade, it's really Franklin's favorite grandson named after him. When Benny, in a letter, tallies for his fiance um, the, the value of everybody's gifts, you know, who got what. Next to William, he wrote zero, 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 zero. Uh, and William was, of wow. course, heartbroken by this. He couldn't have been surprised. Uh, but in William's surviving letters, you know, you see this really, really upset him. Um, and he felt that his his brother-in-law, his sister Sally's husband, uh, was a bit of a gold digger. And he got all the things that William should have got instead. So mm-hmm. it's a sad story, you know, and the two never reconciled. They saw each other one more time very briefly. Um, in Southampton, when Franklin was sailing from Paris back to the back to Philadelphia, they the ship called in in southern England, um, and I think William thought there was going to be a reconciliation and a lot of you know great joy and hugs and so forth. It was a very businesslike encounter where Franklin wanted William to sign over any remaining lands he had in New Jersey to uh, William's son, so his son could have a, a start back in America. So, a sad story there. Yeah, I didn't. I mean, some of that William being jailed, you know, as a, as a loyalist, yeah. it sounds like that really only succeeded in, in radicalizing him and, and making him, uh, I don't know, vengeful. I didn't I didn't realize yeah. that when he got out, there was like a, a Rambo element of, of hunting patriots. There was That's hard to yeah, come there, back there, from. I should say the original draft of this book was 500 pages and some of the things like, <laughs> you know, what did you cut out? And it's because I really did get I, I had the same reaction as you with that. William Franklin? What? Like Patriot Hunter? What? Why isn't this a Netflix series or something, right? Um, But I had to cut all these stuff out because I was trying so, you know, desperately just to stick with the will and what was going on. But these side stories are fascinating. And the same with Franklin's daughter, Sally, you know, who who has seven children, takes care of an ailing Deborah, watches as as her brother and her own son and her nephew all get to go with Franklin, you know, across the Atlantic and live in London or or live in Paris. And Sally is stuck back in Philadelphia. And Sally ends up founding, you know, one of the first interstate or into at the time, they weren't states, but interregional women's organizations where she's sewing, she's arranging women to fundraise and then sew uniforms for the Continental Army. Um, And she's a really fascinating character. And I love that after you know, it, her bequest was quite large and that Franklin gave her um, what what inspired the emoluments clause in the Constitution, which was this huh. brooch that Louis XVI gave to Franklin with the king's portrait 
ringed by diamonds. Um, you know, it was the most valuable thing in, in all of Franklin's estate. And when Franklin came back to uh, Philadelphia, he said to Thomas Jefferson, I have to declare this, you know, like we're not supposed to be receiving gifts, right? Um, and Jefferson said, I'll allow this, but we're going to add you know, the Constitutional Convention. They essentially added that clause because of this gift. But Sally gets this and Franklin says in the will, this is for you only. You know, this is against the laws of coverture at the time, which married women had the same legal status as dependent children. Um, everything was supposed to go to her husband. And he puts in the will, this is not slander on my on my son-in-law's name, but I want Sally to have her own income independent of a man. And I love that, you know, Sally, um, in the will, what Franklin says to her, like, you get the diamonds. The one thing you can't do is don't make them into jewelry because that's a wasteful <laughs> enterprise. Um, but I love that, you know, you turn the page in the book and all of a sudden you see Franklin's house, Franklin Court is being put up for rent um, in 1792 after Franklin dies. And then you learn that Sally is selling individual diamonds and she's using that to finance her first trip abroad. And she wanted to go to Paris, but Paris is undergoing the French Revolution and the Reign of Terror. So instead she goes to William uh, to see her brother William in London. And she stays for two years. And if there's one thing missing from the historical record, I wish I had Sally's letters or diaries of her stay in London and her mm. impressions of that place. Fascinating person. Yeah, I, I love that she uses the diamonds in that way. And I just imagine, you know, her hearing of the expenses and being like, all right, let's rip another one off. <laughs> How much is that? Yeah, uh, she has her portrait painted yeah. by the most famous uh, portraitist. And I love that idea too. Like, will one diamond suffice? Thank you. Or how much <laughs> that? You're right. That's great. I would like a, a carriage with six horses, please. Yeah. <laughs> I imagine, like, this is just how I imagine uh, as a writer going about this thinking, okay, I'm going to write this book about Benjamin Franklin's will, and and it's going to be very narrow, very focused, right. um, and then it becomes basically a, a sort of a biography of Benjamin Franklin, his family, his contemporaries, and the cities of Boston and Philadelphia for 200 plus years. Was there a point where you're like, what the hell have I committed to? Yes. Picture pancake batter <laughs> being dropped on a griddle. Right? It just keeps spreading and spreading. Uh, you know, this is where... This is where it was so helpful to imagine my ideal reader, which is a woman or man who's running through an airport and is about to get on a long flight and needs to grab a book to pass the time because the Wi-Fi is not going to work on the plane. Um, and I kept thinking, I need to keep this under 300 pages. Every page has to have something related to the money or the will or the idea behind it, right? Um, and you're right, because I did start thinking... Well, there's all these people named in the will, so I have to tell the reader who they are and their connections to mm -hmm. Franklin. But at the same time, he's leaving this money to his twin hometowns of Boston and Philadelphia, which are really different cities still to this day and are developing so differently. And they each manage his money differently. And then I thought, OK, well, I also have to give the reader a backdrop a little bit about what these cities are and why they mattered to the states and to Franklin at that time. Um, but, yeah, it sprawled a great deal. And it. The harder part was cutting things out than adding things in, definitely. That's probably always true of writing, though. It's always easy, it's harder to shorten things. This is the reason we we revere the Gettysburg Address. You know, I ask, I teach yes. writing, and so, so I'll give my students the Gettysburg Address, and I'll say, cut 20% of it. <laughs> it's a very hard challenge for them, right? But if, if I give them a, a speech by Seneca or Mary Wollstonecraft or something, you know, or 4,000 words, and I say, cut 20% of that, they can do it. Um, but, you know, it, it's harder to, to narrow things down and polish things. And maybe some of that goes on to another life. Maybe, you know, some long weekend you bang out a pilot for William Franklin Patriot Hunter and talk to Netflix. <laughs> Who knows? Who knows? Yeah, maybe. <laughs> Although, to be honest, I think when you finish with Franklin, you never want to see the man again. I, I sort of flinch now, you know, and I say, oh, there he is again. Because okay. once you, you know about this guy, he's everywhere. You know, and he hasn't really died. Like, again, some, so much of the things that we talk about in contemporary America or we see in contemporary America originate with him. And I'm not even talking about our political institutions, like the whole notion of what philanthropy is. And, and um, again, microfinance or op the open source movement. You know, Franklin refused to, there were no patents in his time, but he could have had exclusive commercial licenses on his inventions and he refused um, and so when you read about open source technology and open source invent, you know, this movement, you'll see his name brought up and you think, oh, he's there too, right? He was the first American in so many ways. 
You talk a lot about uh, Benjamin Franklin's autobiography. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's like the quintessential rags to riches story as he tells it. The lesson that I take from it uh, is that you want to work very hard. You don't go out. You don't have fun. You just read books. Um, That way you can make a bunch of money, retire early and become an eccentric old man who's the life of the party. Right. Is that it? Yeah. And it's all a lie. I mean, I shouldn't say it's all a lie. It's mostly a lie. You know, he... The, the book begins, Dear Son. So he's writing it to William. This is when they still had a, a, a sliver of a connection. And he's writing it mm. uh, as a way to, to show, he wants to show positive examples of life, you know, for people who might read the book. And so because he's writing it to his son, you know, Deborah, his wife, is largely cut out of it, or she's sort of referred to, you know, and oh, she was a good helper sort of thing. He cuts out the part that he he got his start in business thanks to her family. Uh, the Reed family in, on Market Street owned several lots. One of those buildings became Franklin's first print shop that he owned on his own. And so, you know, he inherited a lot through Deborah, and she was a really crack financial whiz herself. And he gave her power of attorney at a time when the pre-printed forms, you know, only allowed for a man's name to be written in. You could see the form where he crosses that out and writes, I give my wife. He writes the word wife and puts Deborah mm-hmm. Franklin's name in there. Um, you know, she oversaw all their mortgages and their their property portfolio and so forth. He also neglects to mention that he held enslaved men and women. He, you know, benefited from free labor. I grew up in Minnesota. Um, and so my American history was... I think remarkably for that time when I grew up, it was a lot about the region, a lot about Lakota history and settlers in Minnesota in the 19th century. Slavery was something that happened somewhere else. That's down in the deep South. Mm. I was never, you know, I didn't realize that, of course, Boston, you know, gentry held slaves and, and Philadelphia people held slaves and they worked in their shops and they worked in their homes and so forth. So Franklin admits mentions of that as well. Now, again, Franklin has a big turn in his life later on. You know, he, like I said, he becomes president of the Pennsylvania Society for the Abolition of Slavery. But he neglects to mention all of this in his memoir. He also doesn't talk about, the memoir is really funny. It's it's really dry. And, and it doesn't have that comedic twinkle that I think you see in Franklin's Port Richard's Almanac. Um, and he, he talks only about the things that worked. You know, and he, he says yeah. this in this letter to William where he's saying, like, I only want to show examples that of successes, but he had a lot of bad ideas and he had a lot of failures. And even, you know, again, like the, who was William's mother? We don't know. Uh, did Franklin drink? Sure, he did at one point in his life. Did he dabble in vegetarianism? Did he, you know, um, care about his health? I, I mean, all these things are there, but you have to find those in the letters. And I think what's, mm-hmm. you know. People, if you get tired of reading ESPN or or Google News or whatever, you know, the journal or or Fox or whatever you like to look at, you can go to franklinpapers.org and they've digitized all of the surviving correspondence of Franklin. It's some 8,000 pieces of correspondence at franklinpapers.org. And you can randomly click on things or you could put keywords in, you know, let's say you're interested in beer or you're interested in taxes or you're interested in, you know, name it. Um, and you can find these letters from Franklin. They're wonderful. You know, he's a he. He would he would have thrived if email. He'd be the annoying person who's emailing you <laughs> in the morning. I think um, he'd thrive on Twitter too with his sayings. But you know, a lot of that fun, interesting, introspective, messy human Franklin is missing from the memoir. And I don't think he expected it to be published as a book. Frankly, it's it's sort of an odd. Mm-hmm mashup of two different um, documents that were put together some 30 years after his death. He left all of his papers for Temple, who was William's illegitimate son. And, and Temple was a bit of a roué who Hamilton, uh, Jefferson, Madison didn't think much of Temple. They thought he was sort of a silver spoon kid that Franklin had appointed as his personal secretary in Paris, but didn't have a lot of innate ability or the spark. And so they didn't give Temple a, a government post, which Franklin had hoped they would. Um, so instead, Franklin in his will leaves Temple all of his papers, and he says, "You're gonna, you're gonna become someone because of this. You're gonna collate all my papers. You're gonna get it published. It's gonna restore your reputation and mine as well." And Temple, no pressure, no pressure, right? And Temple yeah. didn't do it. It took him almost thirty years to finally get on the horse and put that out. And when he did do it, the result was fantastic. But during that period. People were finding scraps of Franklin correspondence. They were finding bits of the memoir and they were publishing it. And so the the cumulative sort of authorized version of Franklin's memoir didn't come out to about 100 years after his death. Mm -hmm. I mean, the papers were so scattered that 
there was a shop in London where the tailor was using them as sleeve patterns. You know, he was cutting around the parchment. Um, there was another cache that was in a Philadelphia stable. And the homeowner, when he had dinner guests, when they were leaving, he'd say, oh, reach into the pile over there in the corner and take some wow. Franklin letters home with you. So Temple had a, a challenge ahead of him. But again, it took him many, many years to get there. So this is a long-winded way of going back to the memoir that it's not the Frank, you know, that was my first introduction to Franklin, actually. Um, I think I had to read that in middle school, if not early high school. And I think like, Ugh, you know, the, the American Yoda is not in those pages. You know, the funny sort of music yeah. human person is not there. Yeah. You talked about how he might excel at Twitter or at least yeah. really enjoy it. And that makes me think about, I didn't realize how many people have cited Franklin's autobiography as, uh, you know, one of their favorite books or a big influence. And that makes me think about Elon Musk. Yes. <laughs> thinking of Twitter. Now, your last chapter, you kind of ask, what would Franklin think of the world today? I'm wondering, do you have any thoughts on what Franklin might think of Elon Musk? He might talk to him about, you know, what it means to be a father and have estranged children as well, because that's <laughs> something else they share. Um, I think with Musk or with any of these, you know, our modern day captains of industry, he'd probably ask, well, what's the greater good here? You know, are you mm -hmm. doing this for the accumulation of personal wealth? Or are you doing something? Are you thinking of, you know, 50 years, 100 years, 200 years? Like, how are the actions you're taking shaping the republic? And how is it making everyday lives better? Um, and I don't mean to sound this like this sounds sort of evangelical on my part. But yeah. one thing that one thing that really surprises me about Franklin, you know, is he Philanthropy, you're right. You know, he makes all this money and at 42, he retires and he starts doing, they didn't call it philanthropy then, they called it charity. But what he does is such a different form of charity because at the time, charity was to solve a single ill. It was usually through the church and it was usually like, let's raise money for the Jones family because, you know, their, their cabin burned down and we want to help them. But Franklin, you know, invents this notion of American philanthropy, which on the one hand is part of your money should grow and the part of your money should be given. Um, but the things you're building should be benefiting the common good and they should not honor yourself. You know, one thing I think is so shocking about Franklin that I wish he could be alive to tell people about today is maybe don't put your name on everything. Maybe don't put your name on your own philanthropy because yeah. when you do that, you're disinviting people to become engaged with it. Why would they give money when it's just serving you, right? And so I think, you know, Carnegie is a fascinating character for me in this book because Carnegie's philanthropy is influenced so much by Franklin's. Carnegie calls him my teacher and Carnegie intervenes at the centennial mark of this uh, project of Franklin's and, and puts money in to help build the trade school in Boston. And Carnegie has to be talked out of putting his own name on that school. Um, but today, just this year, uh, a family foundation gave money to the Franklin Institute of Technology in Boston, this trade school. And they said, well, a condition for this is that you have to put our name on it. So the oh, Franklin Institute of Technology is now the Franklin Cummings Institute of Technology. Um, now, Franklin might also say, well, my name shouldn't be on it. Could just call it the Cummings Institute mm -hmm. of Technology. But it's a bit ironic. So I think, you know, back to Musk, I think I, I, I know what Franklin would say to his his fellow millionaires or billionaires about philanthropy and not using it to self-advertise or self-aggrandize. Franklin, you know, lived at a different time of taxation, but the tax rates, of course, were much lower, but he was adamant that you, if you're going to be a member of society, you have to pay your taxes. This is tricky with Franklin, though, because he sides with management a great deal, as I talk about in the book. You know, he's, he's against a, a, a standard minimum wage, for example, because he thinks that will hurt the bottom line. But I think moreover than all this, with Musk individually, you know, Musk didn't invent anything. Tesla wasn't his, you know, wasn't his baby. He came into right. it and took it over. But people make that connection a great deal. And I know Musk said Franklin's autobiography was his favorite book. I don't know if that's true. Um, I haven't had a chance to interview Elon about this. I would love to. Hmm. But, you know, I think Franklin's larger question with him again is, what's the end game here? What are you doing this for? And I think he'd, he'd be fascinated by the space, you know, space exploration, SpaceX. I think he'd be fascinated by electric cars and renewables in general. Franklin did care a great deal about invent about the environment, but moreover, he cared about efficient inventions. And I think he'd be marveled at that. But on the personal side, I think that would, I just keep going back to this. It's like, well, 
you know, what are you going to leave behind for Americans 100 years from now and 200 years from now? This isn't just a single out Musk. You might ask, he might well ask the same question of our politicians as well. Like, are we living in a day-to-day news cycle where the job seems to be to annoy the right people? Or are you actually proposing things and putting them forward and building things? You know, at the end of the book, I don't take sides either way. I say, you know, every day I read the New York Times, I'd read the Wall Street Journal, I would watch CNN, I'd watch Fox News, and I'd say, well, a lot of the the issues that these publications or these these news organizations are talking about are the same issues, um, but we've yet to come up with a very a middle ro- a road here to, to find solutions to them. And I think Frank would say, like when I lived in Philadelphia, we had a government that didn't work, we had taxation that wasn't app, you know wasn't functioning. But I made sure that we had a hospital and we had a road cleaning crew and we had a university and we had a militia. Um, and I think right now, you know, these days, if he came back to the States, he'd be like, well, what problems are you solving? What are we actually building? And whether it's publicly funded or privately funded doesn't matter. Let's build it um, and get things done. I think he'd be shocked at the gridlock, as we all are. Yeah. <laughs> Um, my last thought about Musk is, is I, I think on Twitter, he may fancy himself a poor Richard, but I don't think that his tweets quite. <laughs> the level of wit just isn't there, is it? No, no, no. And this begs a larger question. Like, is there a modern day Franklin? You know, it's almost like if Mark Twain, you know, had, had invented the electric car or something like I'm trying to think yeah. of some combination of that wit and inventive spirit and that ability to compromise, yeah, this is a larger conversation. You know, Franklin was, he's an autodidact. You know, he only had two formal years of schooling, but he was really ashamed of that throughout his whole life. You know, I think a lot of people who don't have uh, formal educations always think like, oh, I've missed out on something. It's like scratching a phantom limb. I know my parents are that way. And one thing I really admire about him is that he just never ceased learning. He was constantly mm-hmm. trying to better himself and he was constantly trying, you know, learning new languages or or just tr- never feeling so assured in his in his ways and his thoughts. You know, like one thing I really, one of the traits I admire most about him is he changes his mind a lot. Um, and as he ages, he actually becomes more open-minded, which I think is quite rare. Yeah. Um, before I let you go, now we've, we've been having a good time until now, so I hate to go here. I'm a big John Adams fan. <laughs> me too. And I he- say me too. Yes. Okay. Yes. He's not a great character in, in Franklin's story. He isn't. And this is a hard thing with Adams because he also left so much behind. And you can, yeah. the Massachusetts Historical Society has his papers and the Founders Archives, you know, the National Archives site, Founders Online has digitized much of them. And Adams is a lot like Franklin that you can find him taking a position on one thing. And then later, because he lived quite quite long as well and wrote volumes, you could find a different opinion. He is a wonderful writer. He's an amazing wit. Did he loathe Franklin? (laughs) Sure. Was he wrong? I don't know. You know, maybe it's really annoying to be with a 70 year old who's the sparkling, (laughs) charming guy of the party when you want to be at work at eight in the morning, you know, this was Adam's complaint in Paris is that he'd show up in office hours and no one would be there. And then he realizes, well, because Franklin's conducting everything at 1 a.m. Um, and I think we've probably all been in conferences or businesses like this where you have the cool boss, you know, and he or she are, are, are doing things outside business hours. You're like, oh, I'm missing out. I think Adams is fascinating. You know, is one thing I love about him is that he was quite paternal to Franklin's grandson, Temple. And, Mm. you know, when Temple finally publishes Franklin's papers, Adams was one of the first to congratulate him and said, you know, this is akin to writing the history of the Roman Empire. This is no small feat what you pulled off and you did a fantastic job of it. Um, And so there's more to Adams than meets the eye. And he's another person I have to confess to you in the 500 page version of this book. you know, he he was sacrificed quite a bit because I, I quite like him, I have to say. And I a book needs an antagonist, you know, and yeah. in that early part of Franklin's life, Adams is obviously that guy. Uh, but he gets a bad rap. And I, I say in the book, like, I think he'd be great on Twitter. Because um, uh. a lot of the things he says, you know, one of the I have to admit that it might be annoying, but Adams is often right. Like if you look at his observations and you go, oh, gosh, what a crank. 
But then you look at how things play out a few years later, like, you know, Adams was right about that. That exactly is true. And one of the great examples of this is as Franklin is dying that month in 1790, Adams writes to their mutual friend, Benjamin Rush, who's a signer of the Declaration of Independence. He's the American father of psychiatry. Um, And he writes to Rush and he says, you know, the history of our revolution is going to be written as if Franklin took his lightning rod and smote the ground and outsprung General Washington. But the truth is, is that no nation can love more than one man at a time. Mm -hmm. And he was absolutely right, because when Franklin dies a few months later, Franklin was not that man. You know, Washington was. Mm -hmm. Adams was not either. But Franklin had no state funeral. That really surprised me, you know, that his his official American eulogy was not read till 11 months after he had died. And then given by Franklin's true enemy, it wasn't Adams who was his truest enemy. It was his alcoholic minister, William Smith, who who gave the eulogy in Philadelphia. And so, you know, that's an example. There's quite a few of these when you read Adams' letters where you're like, well, you sound like a real jerk, but you're not wrong. Your observations are quite present. Yeah. And you talk about him being an antagonist in the early part of Franklin's life. If you go to Franklin's afterlife, yeah. I mean, that that grudge, we did an episode about the relationship between John Adams and Alexander Hamilton mm. and their mutual hatred for each other that went on even after Hamilton's death. <laughs> Adams just yeah. couldn't stop talking about Hamilton. Oh, he gloats that he was sent to his grave. You know, he was sent to his maker with a bullet in the spine. That's one of his yeah. lines in his letters. It's great. Yeah. Yes. And that, I mean, it's not quite the same, but you talk about how Adams was nice to Temple. Um, yep. Temple. Uh, Benny didn't get the same treatment. His other grandson. <laughs> no, I think they, that's they called him Lightning Rod Jr. You know, Benny was trained by Frank. Franklin had seen what had happened to Temple and he thought, boy, I should have trained William and Temple in my trade. So I'm going to make this right and train Benny to be a printer. And he gives Benny his printing press. Benny comes back from Paris and Philadelphia, you know, just starts cranking it up. He becomes like the New York Post of Philadelphia, um, maybe to the other side of the aisle, I suppose. You know, he's a huge critic of Washington and the Federalists, and he's calling out Washington's hypocrisy for owning slaves. And, you know, the the captain of liberty is a slaveholder, and he's rotating them secretly back to Virginia to... Uh, because in Pennsylvania at that time, if a enslaved person had been within the state boundaries for six months, they were automatically freed. And Washington was ensuring that his servants, as he called them, were being sent back at five and a half month intervals so they wouldn't be free. Well, Benny's exposing all this and he's exposing John Jay's treaty and the secret negotiations with the Brits and so forth. Um, and Adams and the Fed, other Federalists, Adams was kind of waning from the Federalist camp at this time, you know, just excoriated him, couldn't stand him. And they called him Lightning Rod Jr. Mm-hmm. Um, and after Benny dies of yellow fever, quite young in his 30s, you know, Adams says like in the letter where he's triumphing over his enemies that he's bested that, you know, Benny, uh, just like his philanderer father, you know, was was sent to his just demise. <laughs> he received his just end from yellow fever. Ah, uh-huh. uh, Yeah. Yeah, and yeah. he was, I mean, at that point, he was awaiting trial for, for being charged with sedition. Wasn't he like the first person charged? Isn't that amazing? The first yeah. American charge under the Alien and Sedition Acts was Benjamin Franklin's grandson for using Benjamin Franklin's printing press. Yeah. Maybe a takeaway from all this is that it's really no different from today. A lot of these guys didn't like each other. You know, yeah. our media today loves to say what congressperson is, is tweeting at the other congressperson or who's offending whom and... It's kind of like you look back at this, and you're like, well, it's always been this way. You know, maybe this is what a federal republic really is at the end of the day. It's the, uh, or as Churchill said of democracy, right? It's, <laughs> it's the worst possible form of government, but except for all the other ones. Yeah. Um, and maybe that's, you know, a lesson from this. Um, things haven't changed that much. All right. Last question. How much are you looking forward to seeing Michael Douglas play Ben Franklin? Not at all. I think Franklin should be played by Tim Robbins or Tom Hanks. It should be someone tall. It should be um, someone with that sparkle in their eye. You know, I, I, when I, when you said the word Michael Douglas to me, I see his naked derriere and basic instinct is the first thing that flashes in my mind. Um, I think Franklin needs again, like we need to get out of this, like over serious pompous, you know, I'd love to see someone have really have fun with the role because I think, if but if they're shooting that as Douglas is you know playing Franklin as the life of the party, fantastic. Um, have we seen Michael Douglas play the life of the party before? I mean, the Michael Douglas of Romancing the Stone. I think he's got a twinkle in his eye. 
That's see, you and I are of a generation where we get <laughs> that reference. Yes, that and that's a rare Michael Douglas. Yeah, I can see that. Definitely. We'll see. I'm looking yeah. forward to watching the show though. Same here. Um, the book, Benjamin Franklin's Last Bet, it's available now. I have to say it's very well written. It made me laugh out loud several times, which is always a feat in a, in a book about this kind of thing. Um, where can our listeners find out more about you and the book? Well, you can find the book at your local library. You can find the book at your local independent bookseller. You can find the book online, of course, at the online vendors. And then I'm on Twitter at Writer Meyer, uh, Writer, W-R-I-T-E-R-M-E-Y-E-R. And I'm in Taiwan right now. Actually, I'm on a Fulbright fellowship here for the last six months. And so every day uh, on my Twitter feed there, I post a picture of what's going on around Taiwan. So if any of you are interested, this is another story that you know, it's kind of like after Afghanistan and Ukraine happened, I think a lot of people in America looked like, oh, yeah, what goes on over there in those countries? So it's daily life like um, and should we be involved or not? And Taiwan is a fascinating island with a very rich history, with a lot of American involvement, as you can imagine. Uh, and I fear it's going to be in the news for many years to come. So uh, that's what I'm doing here in Taiwan. I'm writing a biography of this fantastic island. Awesome. I'm looking forward to it. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. Wasn't that great? He's amazing. I love talking to people that are passionate about what they study. Well, I was just enthralled with not only, you know, how he answered your questions, but he just threw in tidbit after tidbit of there oh, were yeah. so many yeah. stories and layers within his answers. And it just made me want to say, wait, let's explore that moment. I could have talked all day about Ben Franklin's son hunting down patriots. Yeah. I mean, that alone is its own book. Yeah. He's he's for sure invited to the dinner party symposium <laughs> of historian guests that, that we hope to have someday. Yes. I, I could really talk to him for a long time just because he has layers upon layers of stories. Yeah. And and made me excited to hear more. Definitely. And, and that comes through in his book, too. So I really hope that people check it out. Oh, yeah. And the fact that he teaches writing, that's really exciting. That oh, he's got yeah. the passion for it it's and like, he shares that passion. Way to go. Way yeah. to go, Michael Meyer. Yeah. <laughs> <sighs> Next week, you and I mm -hmm. are going to be looking at another part of Benjamin Franklin's legacy. Really? And the man who despised him. His son? John Adams. Oh, John Adams. Yes. Thank you for listening. And as always, if you like what you heard, spread the word. Mm -hmm. um, here's a new idea. Maybe pick one friend who you owe money to. Oh, yeah. And return it to them in cash, in person. <laughs> and as you're putting the money in their hand, lean in and say, you should check out the podcast Plotting Through the Presidents. I think you'd enjoy it. Oh, yeah? You think that'll work? I think that's how we grow our podcast. Mm-hmm. Um, and Are we desperate for growth? No, but I'm. I'm. <laughs> who, who's not? Who doesn't want to grow? Okay. Okay. Yeah. Or you can write a review. We love those. We love reviews. Yes. I mean, that reminds us that all this hard work is so worth it because we're reaching you, and you reach right back at us. I mean, it really does move our souls when we get good reviews. Yes. Here is a recent review that we got. I want to read it out oh, loud. Yeah. It is from Nerdy Matt from New York. Oh, I love this one. Love this pod. Jess and Howard inform and entertain about a topic I'm obsessed with, early American history, the founders, etc. And since discovering this podcast, I've listened to the first three seasons and am mostly patiently awaiting season four. I joined their Patreon and got a handwritten note in the mail, like real paper and real handwriting received through the USPS. I'd highly recommend this pod. It's just the right mix of information, humor, and nerdiness. I love it. I just love that. And... Thank goodness someone appreciates your paper because you literally tea stain those by hand. I do. Uh, I mean, it's it's a painstaking process <laughs> that is of the utmost importance to you because you want to give our listeners and especially our patrons a special experience. Yeah. So I'm glad I'm glad this wonderful person, uh, you know, called that out. Yes. For thank you. you, Nerdy Matt. Nerdy Matt. Yes. Thank you so much. And thank you all for plotting along with us. Thank you. Plot after dark. Woo. <laughs>